you have here God ultimately showing who he is, and the devil showing who he is, and then we see who wins. <laughs> Uh, and we know that God will win. He's won in the past, and he will win again. And the Scriptures say that. The Scriptures cannot be broken, so Satan is not going to win. But in the meantime, he has a battle going for our minds, for our emotions, and we have to fight against those principalities and powers that we cannot see, as Paul put it. We're not. Our warfare is not just with people. It's with those hidden, unseeing, or unseeable principalities and powers of Satan's kingdom. But the two witnesses will go up against that power, and they will be able, as Elijah and Moses did as types, to cause plagues all over the earth as often as they wish, wherever they think it needful, just like those plagues came on ancient Egypt. Uh, they will also be able to shut the rain off, as Elijah did, for as long as they want during their three-and-a-half-year ministry. And the length of time that that happened in Elijah's day was the same. So the parallels of the past are all going to be reenacted here at the end. Toward showing who God is. So let's pick it up in 30. I went on to verse 2 last week to show the connection here. We'll, we'll review that briefly as well. The word of the Eternal came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Eternal God. Here's what he was to say. Howl you. A pitiful, loud, strong cry is a howl. Woe worth the day. Now what is a woe? It's not just something you tell a horse. Uh, this kind of woe is something dramatic. It is unnatural. It is beyond the experience of anyone. If you go back and read a description of the woes in the book of Revelation, they have to do with great suffering, with great death. Uh, so when God pronounces a woe, it is a very dramatic occurrence. So he says, the time I'm talking about in these scriptures has to do with great woe pronounced upon people. And he says, even the day of the Lord is near. A cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. I tied that in with Luke 21, 24 at the end of last week's sermon, showing that the times of the Gentiles or the heathen will last 42 months, three and a half years, the exact same time that the two witnesses are preaching to the whole world. <coughs> but it's at the end of the age. So again, it's established that these prophecies are not talking about ancient history and things that might have happened to Assyria and Egypt and some of those countries a long time ago, or those peoples. But this is an up-to-the-minute prophecy that we are working our way into right at this moment. <coughs> And then he talks again like he's been speaking in the last few chapters here. A woe or a sword shall come on Egypt and so on. Uh, verse 5, Ethiopia and Libya and others and all the mingled people. So he's pronouncing it on specific nations uh, in type of Egypt and Assyria and various ones who typify uh, 
the kingdoms of Satan, Babylon, and so on. And he mentions the mingled people. So, not just specific uh, lines or races of people or nations of people, but uh, those who are mingled among them in a various racial mixes and so on. It's coming on everybody, in other words. Uh, he says, those that uphold Egypt, in verse 6, shall fall. So anyone who upholds the system that we have today, Satan's system on this earth, will fall and die. Verse 8, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. So he says they'll know it by preaching in verse 21 of chapter 29. Here he says they'll know it by the destruction that comes upon them. It is a woeful destruction, worse than normal. And he goes on to talk about the woe and the trouble and the problems that will come. Uh, go on down to verse 10 or 19. Thus will I execute judgment in the world of sin in Egypt, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. He keeps beating this drum over and over and over again. As I said last week, everybody has to know who God is. Everybody has to have a chance, ultimately, to have salvation. These people who are being killed here as we speak of these prophecies will have an opportunity in the great white throne judgment because obviously the world is not being saved now. God is not trying to save the world. The atheists won't have any excuse, uh, nor will religious people have any excuse. They'll come to grips with the fact that there is a real God that they have not known. Uh, he talks in verse 21 about, I've broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and make it where it won't hold a sword, his arm won't be healed. Uh, verse 25, I'll strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, and the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. And he'll scatter them, verse 26, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. Are you getting bored with that? <laughs> uh no, it's through here over and over again to emphasize with great emphasis that the events that are about to occur on this earth are coming directly from God. You and I can pray at times and wonder, is God hearing me? Is God way off somewhere? You know, how, how am I not getting communication that I want? Why aren't the answers that I want coming in the way that I want them? And so on. Well, God is going to become very, very involved in the affairs that are going on. You know, people in Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, were just going through life. They had no real idea of who God was. And he was leaving them alone, wasn't he? They were doing their thing. God didn't bother with them. And then it got so bad, he said, I am going to take a hand. And he warned those that knew him, to one degree or another, to get out of there. And there was balking and waiting and not wanting. And God said, I'm going to show them who God is. <laughs> now, I don't know that they really comprehended in a flash as Sodom and Gomorrah was so suddenly destroyed. But they may have had enough time to realize Something's going on I'm not used to, <laughs> and I'm dying. And that'll be their 
last thought on earth, and it'll be their first thought when they come up in the great white throne judgment. And they will be aware that there is a power greater than them and that their lifestyle was not in accord with that power. So, God is going to, in many ways, make it known who He is. He is going to take a very active part. We know that even with the church, the end-time church that He gathers together, He says there in Zechariah 2, He will come and dwell with us. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that it means that there will be a much closer relationship than what we have experienced thus far. He has been at his Father's throne this time. He went back, said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bless you. But there he states that he's going to come and dwell with us. So he's going to be right there in Jerusalem and Zion with us. Now, whether that's a visible manifestation or a spirit manifestation, it indicates that he will not be at the throne of his Father. He will be right here. And Ezekiel has those chariots of fire we read about. And I've come to conclude that very, very likely uh, the witnesses will be moved about the earth with those chariots of fire. That way they can be in Zion uh, every night. But go out somewhere in those chariots every day to preach around the world. Now, how did I come up with that zany thought? Well, the light has to go out from Zion, right? There's where the light of God's people will be, is at Zion. Well, if those two are off somewhere going in airplanes or something from city to city around the world, there's nothing to point back here. But if they come out from here every day and go somewhere in the world and preach and pronounce plagues and come back here, then the world is going to see Zion as the center of that activity. And you can't get from here around the world and back every night with conventional means. And the type is very clearly in the Bible. Remember Elijah being picked up by a chariot of fire and taken somewhere? Remember how he had to go against the prophets of Baal? How he pronounced it and no rain came? Same things God says are going to happen here at the end. So those are a forerunner to be fulfilled here at the end of time. That answered a question, I think, that I've had in my mind for years, is just how is this going to happen? And uh, it came clear the other day when I was thinking about this, that Zion is the focal point of where Christ is going to be, where His regenerated church is going to be, and that will be uh, where the light of God emanates from. Now, it has to be that way for another reason. And that is that that fake Jerusalem in the Middle East is going to be uh, revealed for what it is. And the true Jerusalem, with the temple of God built there, is going to be recognized finally by the beast power and false prophet as the true Jerusalem. And they will come and make it their headquarters setting up the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And the people that are there, God's 
called out ones, his uh, remnant, that day will flee to Zion. So the beast power is going to set up its headquarters in the true Jerusalem right up here. Satan knows where it is. Don't you think Satan knows where it was? He's not in, a, in the dark about that. The whole planet is in the dark about that. But Satan knows where it is. And when he's cast down there in Revelation 12 and comes to persecute God's people, where is he going to go? They will be at Jerusalem, having just finished building it, the temple before and then Jerusalem. And he will, that at the end of that 70 weeks, he will pollute it, and the remnant will flee to Zion. So Satan knows exactly where to go when God casts him down from being the accuser of the brethren at his throne. He has no, he has no question. He knows where the remnant of God is. Don't you think the light of God's people sending up prayers to God doesn't bother Satan's eyes? <laughs> he doesn't like the light of God's people. Then he knows exactly where it emanates from. Then it will all be gathered into one spot. And that will really hurt his feelings. And that's where he will attack first. And when she gets to Zion, if she doesn't go back in the house to get something, when she gets to Zion, she'll be protected. And then what does he do? He goes out to get the remnant of her seed. Those who have been left behind are in the tribulation. He'll send a sword out after everyone that is a little point of light. He can see it. He knows where God's converted people are. The Spirit of God is something that Satan is very aware of and troubled by. And he'll know who to go after. So this is something that is very real. Let's go on down in chapter 31 then. I'm, I'm skipping over this somewhat because it's talking about the various powers of the earth. And it's saying the same thing over and over about how they'll be destroyed, how they'll be decimated, how conditions will be so awful that they will comprehend then who God is. Uh, here in chapter 31, it talks about the Assyrian in verse 3. Uh, and how he grew to be quite a nation. Here at the end, not just back in the ancient Nineveh and uh, when they took uh, Israel captive in the past, but again, this is the woe with the day of the Lord. So the Assyrian becomes mighty here in the end time. They raise themselves up in height, uh, verse 10, and has shot up his top among the thick boughs, and his heart is lifted up in his height. So the Assyrian is going to become mighty, and he's going to be proud of himself. And verse 11, God says, I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the heathen. He shall surely deal with him. So Assyria is the rod of God's God's anger to destroy Ephraim and Israel, this nation in particular, along with the coalition of other nations. It'll be basically a the whole world is going to rise up against us and destroy us, us in Western Europe and where Israel is. And then God says, and I think it's back in Isaiah oh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 through there, 
he talks about how the rod of his anger, the Assyrian, will then be decimated again. So it's saying the same thing as it's saying right here. In fact, I think some of that's in Isaiah 11. That's about uh, the lion and the lamb and, and peace and everything. But uh, that happens with God's remnant at the end of this age. They live in peace and safety and security. And the Assyrian is destroyed during that time. So it's not just millennial. It's a pre-millennial setting that will be repeated in a grander scale during the millennium. But God is going to bring those conditions back. Do you see why he has to do that? He has to make Jerusalem and Zion as the Garden of Eden because that will again show what God is able to do in bringing peace in a small area when the world is at war. And that will show that he is God. And those people will be protected by a wall of fire. And that will show that God's people, under his protection, uh, are not part of Satan's system that he can do anything with. They're set apart. And that will help the world focus on Zion, will it not? Here are these people with this wall of fire. We can't do anything about them. And when those two come out and speak to us, we can't do anything about them either. Because if we try, fire comes out of their mouth and devours us. So they will be frustrated that they can't do anything about these people in Zion and they can't do anything about those that come out to speak to them. God is going to show the whole focus of the world where the original place was. Nobody believes it today, but they will believe it then. They'll have no choice. And they'll come and set up their world headquarters here. Right now they're talking about setting up in the Middle East. Moving everybody's embassy to Jerusalem. Well, that's just not the place. That's an Arab city that was built by Arabs and then later inhabited by Jews, and more than by Jews, by Edomites. So that's not Israel. It's not original Judea or anything else. God's focus is going to be right here, just over the hill, just behind these cliffs of Zion we look out every day. That's what it says on the map, cliffs of Zion. One map I have. So the Assyrian is going to rise up high. And he says people will come out from Zion and Jerusalem to stop the Assyrian when he comes into our land. So God is going to offer protection for his remnant people and cause the Assyrian to run for his life. Now that doesn't mean we won't have some trouble in there somehow. I'm not sure exactly how it applies but back there in Isaiah about 9, I think it's 9. Let me go back there right quick. You need to hear this. Uh, no, it's 10. <clears throat> Verse 24 of chapter 10, Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the eternal God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian... So we're not to fear the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Mitzrayim. 
for yet a very little, very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. So, those who dwell in Zion, as they go there, are going to, they're going to try to oppress them, after, make slaves out of them. I don't know exactly how that fits in, but it's for a very little while. Now, if we build the temple and then build Jerusalem, as Daniel tells us we must do, will they come, as in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and try to stop that? Will they try to take us captive? That's the only time element I can figure in because you'll remember the work ceased on the temple for a while in the days of Ezra uh, because enemies came and got it shut down. And it was shut down for either 13 or 17 years, depending on which uh, commentary you read, and then resumed. We don't have that kind of time element for this one, but it could be for a very short while that something happens that is disruptive. And the Assyrian tries to captivate us. So, let's understand that we don't have a totally free ride, a totally free pass. He says, don't fear them. And he tells us back in chapter 8 as well. Don't fear this confederacy that's coming against Ephraim. Uh, fear me. So, we're not to fear the world. We're not to fear Satan. We're to fear God. Only the people who know he is the eternal can fear him in the proper way. The rest of the world can't, and they'll fear the beast, and they'll take the mark, because they can't buy or sell or eat without it. Now, God's told us that the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites will have storage that is left behind for his people. I think that's speaking of the Mormons, though they would not like to hear this. So he's going to take care of us. But don't expect it to be without threat or without an attempt to make slaves out of us. Now, exactly how that comes down, stick around and find out. <laughs> but it's coming. So I want you to know that ahead of time so you're not disillusioned when you don't have a completely easy, everything taken care of voyage. Know that there will be danger, there will be trouble, but God will deliver us out of it. Speaking of the Assyrian then in verse 26, And the Eternal of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and as the rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. So he says he's going to destroy the Assyrian with the same kind of power and strength that he took Pharaoh and the Mitzrayim army down. If you go to Micah 5, you see that seven or even eight principal men go out against the Assyrian when he comes in our land and sends them packing then. So their attempt to take us into slavery, their attempt to do to us what was done in Mitzrayim, will be taken care of by God, and he will turn around and do to them what they are trying to do to us. What goes around comes around. God's going to take care of it. 
And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off your shoulder and his yoke from off your neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The anointing not just of Christ, but the anointing of the two to go out and preach Christ and his people, his remnant, who are his witnesses in Zion. Uh, they are anointed to be his witnesses, not just two. You, you read that all through Psalm, I mean Isaiah 41 through 43, where it says several times of the remnant, you are my witnesses that I am God. So one another way that you, that the world will come to know who the eternal is, is through the example of his uh, remnant that he calls to finish the work. Who will be building the temple? Who will be building Jerusalem? Those people. Well, they'll be front and center in the attention of the world as they do that. A world that cannot do anything about what they are accomplishing. So to say there are only two witnesses is not the whole story. There will be several thousand witnesses that God is God, that the world will have to pay attention to. And when they come and try to destroy that remnant, it won't happen. Don't fear them, fear God. He says they'll try, and they will smite you on the shoulder. So they do, are, are able to do something small. So realize that. Now, getting back over here, uh, let's go to chapter 32. Here he talks again in verse 2 about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You are the young lion of the nations. You're like a whale in the seas. And then he goes on and talks about the destruction he will lay on it. Uh, verse 7 uh, is important for timing. And when I shall put you out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. Well, read Revelation and Joel and other places that describe <coughs> the day of the Lord. So the time of the destruction of these peoples and the nations of the world is at the time of the day of the Lord, which immediately follows the three and a half years of the tribulation. Because the year, the time of the Gentiles, the time of the heathen, is that three and a half years of tribulation, when they will be ruling. And it's at the end of that time, God says there in uh, Matthew 24, is it not, or 25, that He will immediately after the tribulation of those days, that He will cause the sun to grow dark and the moon not to give her light. I'll go back and read it instead of just quote it. Um, Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. See, a lot of people think that the tribulation is the day of God's wrath. No, it's not. It's the time of the heathen when they are in, uh, in charge and the witnesses of God are a pain to them. So immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. And they shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, 
And they'll see him coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll gather uh, the first resurrection there. So that's the beginning of the day of the Lord. That goes on for a year. A day is as a year. While the bride is up having a honeymoon with Christ, he takes a year off to cheer up his bride while the day of the Lord is racing forward down here on this earth. So, the context of Ezekiel shows that time. Uh, there in verse 7 of chapter 32. And he'll vex the hearts of many people, verse 9, when I shall bring your destruction among the nations into the countries that you have not known. Uh, going on down, he'll spoil the pomp of Egypt in verse 12. Verse 15, Then shall they know that I am the Eternal. Repeat it again. Uh, then it talks in verse 22 about Asher is there and all her company. His graves are about him, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. Asher was a son of Shem. Uh, if you go back to Genesis 10, and is likely the one who became the Assyrians and maybe modern Russia. They seem to be the power that we're being lined up against now who will lead the charge when we are destroyed. Uh, there are white people, we have to understand, of the, the race of Shem that are not Israelites. God worked through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make Israel, which are of the uh, pale face extraction. But there were other sons there uh, who were also of the same uh, essential bloodline in the same race that are not Israelites. Uh, it mentions Elam next after Asher, and I don't have any clue as to who Elam might be today. But again, if you go back to the Genesis 10, Elam was a son of Shem, so they're white folks, is who Elam is. Now, if you have Israel and the United States, Canada, uh, mixed Israelites south of us, you have uh, Israelites in Western Europe, Australia, and so on. There are lots of white people on earth apart from that, if you think about it. Russians, you see a Russian on the street, there's not much difference unless uh, you've got different clothes or different uh, style or whatever. You wouldn't know a Russian from an American. Uh, they, there's lots of blondes and blue eyes and so on there in Russia. So Assyria, or Asher, is, uh, again, a son of Shem, just not Israelites. Well, there are others. I don't know where Elam might be, but if you look at the former USSR, there's lots of countries over there that are basically white people, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, to name a few. There's lots of countries there that are essentially white and are probably Semitic. They certainly don't look Asian, and they don't look black. So they must be uh, Semites or Shemites. And some of those nations might have the Elamites in them. Elam's mentioned in Acts 2, uh, when the mixed peoples came there, uh, when the Holy Spirit came. There were Elamites there. And in Nehemiah 7.34, when it's talking about the peoples that were gathered there to help build the temple, uh, there were Elamites there. So I don't know... 
where to place them today, but they are sons of Shem, and they are, therefore, of the white race, and they're somewhere. Just don't know exactly where. <laughs> but they, too, are going to be destroyed. And then verse 26, there's Meshach and Tubal. Uh, you could add Gog and Magog to that. Uh, go to Genesis 10 again, and those are sons of Japheth. So that's speaking of Asian countries. Meshach, Tubal, and all her multitude, hordes of the east. Uh, I just read that as of the first of the year, the earth's population will have reached 7.4 billion. We've been saying 6 billion for a long time, but it's been increasing all this time. And that's not Israelites that are causing that growth. Europe is stagnant, and actually the European Israelites are going backward in population, as is the case in the United States among actual Israelites. Uh, so, when it talks about the hordes of the East, that's where the greatest population growth is going on, is in Asia. Not in Japan, it's going backward as well, but throughout the rest of Asia, it's increasing dramatically. So, God is... He's just, he's just picking out all the major powers around the world and all their satellites and mingled people. This is a worldwide destruction. That's the point. Without going into this and trying to, trying to determine exactly who everybody is, uh, it really doesn't matter uh, because it's going to be worldwide when God starts the day of the Lord. It'll be on the whole world. But he singles it out and makes sure that we understand it's a big thing. It's worldwide. All these different peoples. Verse 29, there is Edom, her kings and all her princes. Well, we know that the Edomites are of Esau, and they are still vexed at Israel and hate Israel. And the book of Obadiah, among all these other scriptures, shows that they will laugh with glee when we are taken down and destroyed. And then God will turn and destroy them as a result of that, just like he will the Assyrian. So the Edomites are among us today, and they are gaining control over us. In fact, I think I would have to say they have gained control over us, as Edomite uh, people who say they are Jews but are not have taken over uh, the banking industry and much of politics and various things. I mean, this thing is very near upon us now, very near upon us. So for the Edomite to be in those high places, they have to have a great deal of control already in order to be in on our destruction. They have to already be in place today. This isn't something far off in the future now. This is coming like a freight train. You, you can kind of hear it in the distance now. It, is, it isn't very far away. So Edom is included as well. Verse 32, for I have caused my terror in the land of the living. Now there he makes a summary statement. <laughs> Wherever there are living people, my terror will be known. That is the day of the Lord, immediately following the three and a half years of tribulation, as we just read in Matthew 24. My terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that are slain with the sword, even Pharaoh, Egypt, and all his multitudes, says the eternal God. 
Now, this is followed up by, I think, a very important chapter and one that we'll spend some time in here uh, because what he has laid out in these previous chapters is utter destruction of the world's population from 7.4 billion down to about 100 million, as Daniel seems to indicate, when Christ does return with his bride to judge the world. Uh, that's a lot of death and destruction by that point including the seven last plagues. Now, with that background, we go into Ezekiel 33. It's very, very important for God's people to focus on Ezekiel 33. What we've just read is not really our focus so much as it is God letting us know what is going to happen to this earth and to everybody in it. And then he begins to address the people he is working with specifically here. It's in general at first, but it gets very, very specific. So let's look at chapter 23. Now, this is a parallel with chapter 18. We went through, well, I started to say just recently. It's been, I guess, months now since we were back in 18. But there it talks about every man will answer for himself. The son doesn't answer the father, the father for the son. It's almost parallel to chapter 33, and even implores Israel to repent, and why will you die, O Israel, and so on, uh, as is mentioned in 18. But some of that's repeated here in 33. But this is repeated and put forth right after his uh, dissertation about the destruction of the peoples of the earth. So let's pay attention. Again, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, so he's to speak to Israelites. Now today, I am limited to speaking just to spiritual Israelites, just the church. And in fact, God says that he is limiting at this point, and he mentions at least three times how Ezekiel was to be dumb and not be able to speak outside his own house. And then we just read that the voice will be opened in the midst of the world. That's the beginning of the Great Tribulation and the preaching of the witnesses to the world. So they're kept quiet until that time. And that again, as I say, is emphasized in Revelation 10, where they were commissioned to go speak, and it said it'll be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach, because you're speaking of the kingdom of God which is to come, and that's sweet. But the bitterness is all the events that have to occur before that. And it's just before then they're told, go speak to the world and go tell them of the destruction that they're going to experience. See, that destruction does not really come so much during their ministry. Because that's the time of the Gentiles when they're ruling the earth for three and a half years. The time of the heathen to rule. So the two witnesses are not going to be preaching in the midst of all this destruction we're reading about here in Ezekiel. This comes, as stated in the context here, during the day of the Lord, which comes immediately after the preaching to these peoples for three and a half years. At the end of that three and a half years, the two die and are resurrected three and a half days later, along with the rest of the saints. And while they are on a honeymoon with Christ, this destruction that Ezekiel is talking about, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, 
will occur during that year, during the seven last plagues. So, yes, the world will suffer because the witnesses will cause plagues and stop rain and destroy any who fight them, but it will not be a general destruction. They will be fighting against them, and when those two are killed, the world is going to rejoice and have a party and send communication and gifts to each other. Oh, we won! We won! And then they're going to look in great horror as those two get up out of the streets of Jerusalem three and a half days later and rise to meet Christ in the air along with the saints and prophets of old. That will scare them. And then the seven last plagues will be released upon them. That's when they are destroyed, not during the tribulation. They'll be pestered during the tribulation, but not destroyed. Okay? So, he says, speak to your people. Now, Israel is destroyed before the tribulation. Let's understand that. When the beasts and the false prophet take power which they are beginning to do now. And the signs of us being destroyed are all through the news if you're paying attention. We're hated pretty well universally at this point. And he says, The beast and the false prophet will take the great whore, which is Israel, read Ezekiel 16, and destroy her. She is the mighty Babylon of Revelation 18 and the great whore mentioned there as well as Ezekiel 16. So America is going to be destroyed at the beginning of all this. And then the Gentile nations will take over for 42 months. So Ezekiel 33 is taking us back not to these chapters we've just read that are during the day of the Lord, it's taking us back to when Israel is to be destroyed. God always deals with Israel before He does the Gentiles. Read Romans 11. He begins to convert and to bring the message to Israel and then to the Gentiles. That's the way He has always worked. So when the destruction comes, it'll come on Israel first, then the Gentiles will think they won, and they'll live in a euphoria of glory for three and a half years, except for the pimple on their behind, which is the two. But this nation's going down first. So he says, speak to your people, not to the Gentiles. He's already been talking about their destruction here. And say to them, when I... God, bring the sword upon a land. If the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman. Now, this is a general statement here. And he's speaking to Israel, but he's saying any people, any nation that begins to look to someone as a watchman or somebody to warn them, then that watchman had better do what he has been appointed or selected to do. If the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he sees the sword come upon the land and he blow the trumpet and warn the people, 
Then whomsoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Now, I think this implies that even the nations of Israel can have watchmen among themselves, not converted ministers of God, but there have been some right now who are trying to give a warning to this nation. I read some of their websites where they have articles posted warning America that she's about to be destroyed, a financial destruction and a military destruction. Steve Quayle, Dave Hodges, uh, what's his name that has all the videos that's the loudmouth, uh, Alex Jones. There are quite a few out there, and, and there are far more than that. That's just the ones that immediately come to mind, who are trying to tell America she's in trouble. Now, I think they qualify under this general statement here as watchmen in this land of Israel. Now, they're not God's watchmen. Understand that. They are Israel's watchmen that Israel has that are trying to warn them. Now, they have not necessarily been set up by the people, but they began to understand what's going on in our country to one degree or another, and then people began to come to them to get the story. There are a lot of people that tune in to all those alternate media sites who want to know what's going on. So in that sense, they have said, if nobody listened to those men, their websites would disappear, okay? So by going there and listening to what they have to say, they are setting those men up as watchmen for them. I will come to your website, and I will hear what you have to say so that I know what's going on. So there's a certain percentage of Americans today who are tuned in to those men, and those men do not have a clue who God is. They are not ordained or inspired of God. And I think this might answer a question for us, because I have heard prominent ministers within the Church of God make statements about how this, oh, what was his name, uh, the Jew, Kaplan, uh, somebody remember him that was, wrote the book, uh, about the willow tree and or in uh, there at the tr trade center and all that stuff doesn't matter what his name is Khan. Uh, I heard a prominent minister in the Church of God to whom I look for some things say that they thought he was a prophet of God. No, that's a misunderstanding, and it's not comprehending Ezekiel 33. That Jewish Khan man. Uh, no, it's not spelled that way. Uh, but I think he is a watchman for the physical peoples of Israel and the Jews. He sees a lot of what's going on, and he's trying to warn the nation. And so are these other fellows I mentioned with their Internet sites. Again, they are not ministers of God. They are not ordained of God. They are not sent of God. But they are people who are aware of some of what's going on. So people have gone to them to learn what is going on. Now you're going to see a difference made here in a moment, and I think I can make this point very clear. This says, if the people of the land, that's the people living around us, the people of the land. 
Now, if these who see what's coming don't tell the people, God will cause them to die also. And they may anyway. But they will have at least told people, and the blood will be on their head. See, these people are being told, you need to prepare. This nation is going under. Have a bug out location. Have food and water and guns and guns, gold and ammo and different things that are their, their watchwords, their buzzwords. They're being told destruction is coming. The dollar is going down. That's the same message as Zephaniah. Those are the same messages you and I read in the Bible. Those guys don't read the Bible. They have no clue who Israel even is. They don't know who God is. But they do see the signs and the warnings that trouble is coming. And a few of them even have a knowledge that there is a God who is going to bring judgment on peoples of the earth. They're at least that aware. They just don't know who the true God is. I've met Steve Quayle several times in person. And he's a Protestant. He has no clue who God is. And when I tried to bring up certain things about Israel and the true God, I was met with incredulity. <laughs> he didn't believe a word I had to say. So they don't know who God is. But they do know trouble's coming. So they're not ministers of God. They're not men that God sent. They're men who simply are able to understand and comprehend a certain amount. And part of it is Bible-based. So those are the men of the coasts of our land who have set those people as their watchmen. And the warning is the same for any watchman. Uh, who hears that and doesn't take warning uh, the sword comes and kills him, the blood's on his own head. Now, some people are taking uh, careful note of what these watchmen of their people are saying, and some of them are moving up into the mountains and remote places. And, <laughs> and we recently had the uh, big fire up here uh, just north of us in Cedar Mountain. Uh, I'm trying to think. The name of the town won't come. Uh, it will eventually in this mind. Um, when those forests burned this last summer, when they went in to explore and check around, they found lots of places where some people from down here, from Salt Lake to here, had gone up and dug places in the ground and made them bunkers. And when the forest burned, <laughs> they became obvious where they were. So people are making themselves hideout and bug out places all over. And uh, they're taking the warning of what these men that are on these alternate websites are saying. That's their authority to do it. Some of them are Mormons, and the Mormon church is doing a, a certain amount of warning. they got a guy named Joel Skosen, or Joe, or whatever it is, and uh, he's giving a certain amount of warning. But it all comes from a Mormon perspective. It's certainly not godly and inspired of God, it's inspired of Mormonism and some of their prophecies of some of their demon-influenced uh, uh, people. Either Satan knows what's going to happen, too. He knows, and he has educated some people into some of this. Anyway, if they take warning, uh, they may be some of those that survive and go into the millennium. 
See? But if they don't pay any attention and they stay in Chicago or New York, they're probably going to die. But if they come out to the Rockies and the mountains and into Canada and Honduras or wherever they go uh, and get away, they may live. So the warning that all these guys are doing may do some people some good. I hadn't really thought of this perspective before, but it answers that question. I knew that Mr. Khan, the, the Jewish rabbi, was not a minister or a, uh, an inspiration from God. That I knew because I know the Bible. But I just, it just now occurred what the, uh, the connection is. That they are men of the coasts of America that have been placed by those people to educate them on what's coming and to be able to get away from it. And some of them are heeding that, and they will escape. You know, there's going to be about 10% of Israel that escapes. Third will die of uh, the sword, third of famine and pestilence first, third taken captive, and then about 10%, a little less than actually, will survive to the millennium. And I would bet money that some of these people who are listening to these watchmen that are on the Internet today will have a pretty good percentage of survivors because they did take warning and did try to go find a way to get away. They'll have a lot better chance than the ones that stay in the cities, I'll guarantee you that. And the reason they're leaving is because of what they learned from these people. So, this approaches this from a physical standpoint first. Now we'll read on and we'll see what God says more specifically. Uh, verse 5, 6, I mean, But if the watchmen see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come, and take any person from among them, uh, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Okay, now let's go on and see God narrow this down and make a specific statement. Not just in general about physical Israel, but now a spiritual statement. Verse 7. So you, O son of man, I have set you a watchman to the house of Israel. Now up to this point, it was the people of the coasts who recognized certain watchmen from among themselves. And it says they set them up as watchmen. Now, when it comes to God's watchmen, it isn't done that way. Never has been. So, God is using Ezekiel as a type of the end-time watchmen, or watchmen, it'll be two ultimately, that are to go to the house of Israel. I have set you a watchman to the house of Israel. They don't do it themselves. The church does not set up its own watchmen. God sets up the watchman, and then the church comes and listens to them. That's the way God set it up. Therefore, you shall hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Now, he didn't say that prior to verse 7. <coughs> it said, the watchman will come, and the people will set them up and look to them, and they will warn about what they see. Now, this is totally different here. It says, I have appointed my watchman, therefore you shall hear the word at my mouth. 
and warned them from me. So these are the ones then that God has appointed, has anointed, has inspired, and their word comes not from reading the Wall Street Journal, but from God, preaching the truth of God from the Bible. See the difference? Rabbi Khan was one that came from verses 1 through 6. God's anointed watchman that he appoints starts in verse 7. Warned them not about what they see happening around them or what they read from deep uh, people buried in the government who are telling you what's really going on or whatever. No, this is from God. There's the difference. When I say to the wicked, now it's God speaking here. He's not, he's not having some of these men of the world talk. He's saying, these words are for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. If you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Now, God says, when I set up my ministry and I tell them to go do it, they better get it done. <laughs> Not back off, but get it done. Warn the wicked from his way. Now, who is the wicked here he's talking about? He's not talking about the citizens of New York and St. Louis. <coughs> he's talking about the church here. My ministers that I send to warn my people. <coughs> and they had better do it. Otherwise, their blood is on their hands. On the, on the watchman's hands. Nevertheless, verse 9, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Now, who's he talking about here? Well, who did God spew out? <coughs> Excuse me. He spewed out the church. He said the church is wicked. The church needs to repent. It's lackadaisical. It's wallowing in sin. So what's the job? Preach to the church. What does he tell the two there in Revelation 11? He says, leave out the outer court of the Gentiles, go speak to those at the altar, the ministry, and those that worship therein, the membership of the church. So he says, leave out the world. Don't even go to them. The first message is to the church. And then... Zechariah 3 and 4 back that up by saying that they feed all seven of the churches. Chapter 3 talks about a great rock, which is Christ, and seven eyes upon it. Christ is going to do things to a small part of the church that will catch the eye of the rest of the church because he will do signs and wonders and they will look to him doing those miracles. <clears throat> because it will be Christ doing the miracles, not the ministry or the men. Now, some of it will be through the men, as it always has been, but it will be God behind the whole thing. So, the seven eyes of the seven churches, as revealed in Revelation 1 through 3, will be turned to what God is doing, where his remnant will then begin to gather. Okay? And then in chapter 4, it shows the two are together at that point. 
And they feed all seven churches, all seven candlesticks, the Word of God, the oil, the Spirit of God. So their job is to the church. So when he brings this up in Ezekiel 33, and makes a difference between worldly men who are warning the physical nation and those whom he sends, their message is to the church. It's not to the world. It's to the church. They don't go to the world until the abomination is set up in Jerusalem, the church flees to Zion, and then they go out and preach to the world. So this watchman message here from verse 7 on is about God's ministry and the church. And if you don't warn them, I will require their blood at your hand. Verse 9, Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked of his way, to turn, tell the Laodiceans to repent. Tell everybody to repent, because we all got spewed. We all were Laodicean. It isn't just somebody on the East Coast or South Florida. This is the whole church, worldwide. If you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. Go right into the tribulation. That's where most of the church is going, 90% of it. 30% will <coughs> repent during it, according to Rev- uh, Zechariah 11 or 12, wherever it is there. We don't repent, we'll die in the tribulation. That's, that's what Ezekiel saying. Verse 10, Therefore, O you son of man, speak to the house of Israel. Who do they speak to? The house of Israel. Spiritual Israel in this case. Thus you speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, now how should we then live? Now, God does nothing except He warn through His servants the prophets, we're told. So what about this physical nation and the warning that they are to receive? Why aren't we at least going to Israel now? Not the world, but to the nations of Israel, if they have to be warned. We're not, are we? No. Herbert Armstrong did. You could not drive across the United States without being able to tune that broadcast in every half hour somewhere. Now, Ted talked about whales and platypuses, but before that, Herbert Armstrong talked... I, I can remember as a child hearing him talk about these prophecies in Ezekiel. And he was pretty strong about it. There for a while, he did preach the world, the gospel to this nation. Been a while, <laughs> but he did do it. And how much attention did the world pay? Almost none. Almost none. He even went to the leaders of the nations of the whole world. And they didn't pay any attention either. I mean, they liked his Waterford crystal and so on, but they didn't really pay attention to his message. They tried to feed him unclean food everywhere he went. <laughs> But, in addition to that, they have set up their own watchmen, verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, who are out there telling them, we're about to be taken over militarily. Our economy is about to collapse. The petrodollar is gone. So there is a warning going out. 
And it is their prophets that are giving a warning right now. Not God's. God's is to spiritual Israel. It will be to the whole world later, but not now. So I have no remorse or no conviction or no conscience about not going to the world right now. The Scriptures say this isn't the time to do that. they got their own warners. See, they're not, going, they're not being warned spiritually right now. Herbert Armstrong warned them to some degree spiritually. And a few paid attention, the church, that which became the church. Now you have worldly men out there who are warning them, and they're paying some. They're paying more attention to them than they did to Herbert Armstrong. There's a greater number of them prepping right now than ever prepped under Herbert Armstrong out of the whole populace of the nation. So they're getting some warning. But God's warning is first to His church. He always starts at the highest level of responsibility. Spiritual Israel, ultimately physical Israel, than the rest of the world. That's the way God works and always has. Okay. I was going to finish this chapter today, wasn't I? But I think this needed expounding. I understood. I understand it now, and I didn't. Uh... Verse 10, Therefore, you son of man, speak to the house of Israel. Thus you speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? He says, you're going to listen? You're going to hear? The church isn't right now. Ten percent will respond when Christ begins to do those miracles mentioned in Zechariah 3. Say to them, as I live, says the eternal God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Isn't that essentially the exact same thing that he said in Revelation 3 to Laodicea? Why will you die? Repent. Get on fire for me. Same message. And this is speaking about the same period of time. Ezekiel 32 and Revelation 3 are speaking about the exact same period of time, just prior to the day of the Lord. Therefore, you son of man, say to the children of your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not uh, fall thereby in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sins. Isn't that what Revelation 3 says to all the churches? If you overcome, you'll live. If you obey me, you'll live. If you get on fire and repent, you'll live. If you stay in your wickedness that I spewed you out for, you will die. Same message. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trusts to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousnesses shall not be remembered but for his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die for it. Isaiah 54 says that our self-righteousness is going to go away and that our righteousness will be his righteousness. End of chapter 54 of Isaiah. So the self-righteousness of Revelation 2 and 3 has to go away. Us considering ourselves righteous instead of bloody, filthy rags and to serve Him and keep His commandments in the way He wants them kept, 
and that is his righteousness. Our righteousness is the hypocrisy of saying we keep the law, but not really doing so. That's our righteousness. That's the hypocrisy in every one of us who know better and don't do better. I know I'm not supposed to gossip, but hey, this is too juicy to let go. You know, whatever it is, whatever sin. Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. <coughs> None of his sins that he has committed shall be mentioned to him. He has done that which is lawful and righteous, he shall surely live. Now, how long a period does he have to be wicked, or how long a period does he have to be righteous? Doesn't say, does it? Now, you can start going through the Bible, and this could be a sermon or two. You can go, start going through the Bible and finding people who are wicked, and then who repented and were righteous, and vice versa. And some of them, after they repented from a wicked life, did not live very long and died. But they'll be in the first resurrection because they repented of it and became righteous. It doesn't say they had to be righteous for X number of years. Paul had persecuted the church all his life, or true religion, ever since he heard of it. But when he was struck down and repented, he began to live more righteously. And he will be in the kingdom of God because of the righteousness, not because of the murdering of Christians. That isn't the best one to think, because he lived quite a while, quite a few years. I, I thought of one the other day when I was reading this. Now, it won't come to mind, but it was somebody who did not live long after they were converted. I've known people like that in the church. They called out of the world, were baptized, converted, showed a certain amount of growth, and were in a car accident or something and died. That period of righteousness that they lived correctly will be what God judges them for, not what they did prior to that. Won't even mention his sins to him. Again, verse 17, Yet the children of your people say, The way of the eternal is not equal, but as for them, their way is not equal. Well, I've been in the church for 50 years, and he was only in six months, and he gets in the kingdom, and I've had to go through all of this, and, and I still barely make it. Or may not make it, that attitude. God's way isn't fair. Why wasn't I an apostle? Yet the children of your people say it's not equal. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall even die thereby. But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. So God says it doesn't matter whether you are righteous and turn wicked or wicked and turn righteous, you'll be judged on how it came out. Now, we say that's not fair. We see somebody commit a sin, and oh, we'll never forget that. That person sinned, and we bring it up to each other. We may bring it up to them. We're saying God's judgment is not right. My judgment is. 
See how this applies to us? Everyday life. If we do not forgive others their trespasses and not mention them again, then we will be destroyed. I will judge you as you judge them. If you do not forgive them, I will not forgive you. God says, if the wicked turn from his wickedness and live right, if he repent of his sin or sins, they will never be mentioned to him again by me. But we don't think that's fair. I wasn't sinning. I was being good. And they sinned and God's going to bless them. No, no, no. Let's talk about them from now on and what they did a year, five, ten, fifteen years ago. Let's get this down to the grassroots where it really fits. He's talking to the church here. And he's saying, if they turn around and they repent, I'm not going to mention their sin again. And he said, you better dare not. You're saying, my judgment isn't fair. I know what he did. And I'm going to tell you what he did. We can't go there, brethren. If God doesn't, we better not. Fools walk in where angels fear to tread. This is serious business. I'm warning you. I don't want it on my head. I don't want it on your head. Verse 20, Yet you say, the way of the eternal is not equal. O you house of Israel, I will judge you, everyone, after his ways. I am the judge. How many times will you read, and they shall know that I am the eternal? I've had people recently tell me, and not only am I going to jail, I'm going to hell. Is that their judgment? Or is that God's judgment? I am the judge, God says. Everybody's going to learn that He is the eternal. And more specifically, His church. They better be the first ones that listen. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity in the tenth month, the one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came to me saying, The city is smitten. Well, worldwide's been basically destroyed. And there are those around who are saying, The city is smitten. And it's been a siege on the church. We just had the fast of the tenth month about the siege on the church. And my prayer is that that siege will be lifted and stop. And it will be on the remnant very soon. Now the hand of the Eternal was upon me in the evening before he that was escaped came and it opened my mouth. So he says, before God opened my mouth to talk and told me to talk, uh, he, he came uh, before I was told to talk. And my mouth was opened and I was no more dumb. So a story of destruction came and Ezekiel's mouth was opened so that he could speak of it. And that's what he's telling him here. I've made you the watchman for my spiritual people Israel, the church, and open your mouth and say it. You know, nobody was capable of saying this 30, 40, 50 years ago. Nobody was. Herbert Armstrong never understood the message. It is only recently that we've been able to tell the church 
the real truth about what is coming and what our place is and what our job is once God revealed it. So then, verse 23, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, they that inhabit those wastes of the land of Israel, the church destroyed, and it's a wasteland, saying, Abraham was one, and he inherited the land, but we are many, the land has given us for inheritance. I've had, we've got people right here on this property saying, this is our land, this is our inheritance. No, this is the land God set aside for his remnant to begin to gather to. It's not their land, it's not your land, it's not my land, it's God's land. But you got those trying to claim it for their own, saying it's mine. Well, duh, here it is in verse 24. Can you believe it? Wherefore say to them, Thus says the eternal God, You eat with the blood, and lift up your eyes toward your idols, materialism and land and whatever else, and shed blood. Character assassination here. And shall you possess the land? Question mark. Give me a break. No. Say thus to them, Thus says the eternal God, As I live, God swears on his own immortality. Surely they that are in the waste shall fall by the sword, and him that is in the open field will I give to the beast to be devoured, and they that be in the forts and in the caves shall die of the pestilence. <coughs> this destruction is coming. It has been on the church. And it is about to come on the nation as well. But the message here is primarily to the church. It's to us, the watchmen that God has set. For I will lay the land most desolate, and the pomp of her strength shall cease. And the mountains of Israel, the government, shall be desolate, that none shall pass through. They won't have any power anymore. U.S. government, European governments, whatever. Then shall they know that I am the Eternal, when I have laid the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. So I think he expands it here not just to include the church, but he expands it to include the whole peoples of Israel. <coughs> Certainly both. Also, you son of man, the children of your people. Now, he's speaking to... Ezekiel here, who was appointed by God to speak to his people. So this is about the ministry and the watchman God puts at the end and what will occur. Okay, he says, you, son of man, not talking about Rabbi Khan or Alex Jones or anybody else. The children of your people still are talking against you by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that comes forth from the Eternal. And they come to you as the people comes, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words. But they will not do them, for with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. And lo, you are to them as a very lovely song of one that is a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do them not. Now, on a small level, we've experienced that right here. They were coming, and they were saying, oh, those are good sermons. And even then, when they turned against me, 
and accused me of all kinds of wrongdoing, some of them were still listening and saying, that was a good tape, that was a good sermon. The message is right, they would say, but Daryl is no good. Literally, that's what they were saying right here. Isn't that what this is saying? If I send someone to give a message, they'll say, oh, that's a wonderful message. What a wonderful sermon. But they won't do what you say. They'll turn against you. They'll speak behind the doors and around the walls against you. We experience that right here. They may be experienced on a larger scale in other places. I don't know, but by experience, we can say that's happened right here. This is specific to the church. And when this comes to pass, lo, it will come. It cannot be avoided. What he's talking about here, he says, will happen. Then shall they know that a prophet has been among them. God is going to back up those messages. and He is going to cause them to happen. And they're going to realize as they go out into the tribulation, Oh my God, what should I have done? They'll know that the word of the Eternal has been spoken to them. And these right here at Anatoth are spoken of specifically. Jeremiah 11, they will go into famine, pestilence, and the sword. That's the tribulation. They will be purged from among us. There are several scriptures that talk about them being cast out and go into the tribulation. So we know it on a very small level here. I mean, this isn't something we have to fantasize about or think, I wonder where that applies. We've seen it with our own eyes. And it's going to go through to its conclusion. Lo, it will come. We've been warned. We need to be careful what we say and what we do and not say God's way is unequal. His judgment is the only one that counts, and we had better get in line with His judgment. And if we forgive others, we will be forgiven. Anybody who is not willing to forgive and forget and not mention someone's sins again will not, be men- will not be forgiven, and his sins will be mentioned again, and he will go into the lake of fire. Certainly, the fire of tribulation, and hope he repents there. If he doesn't repent there, then it is the lake of fire. It's on your head. Mine is on my head, and yours is on your head. You don't have to worry about anybody else's head. God is their judge. So quit worrying about somebody else's level of righteousness and get your own right with God. That's the message.